Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Today we're going to be talking about the CW's Riverdale, which is a gritty reboot of the Archie comics. Is that a sentence we thought we would be saying five years ago? Probably not, but here we are. I am joined today by my wonderful co-host, Hannah. Still my co-host, still wonderful. How does it feel? It feels good. It feels real good. Hello, robots. I'm I'm excited about this one because I love trashy teen soap operas. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna get that out in the open. And this show is the heir apparent to Teen Wolf. <laughs> it really is, though. Like, like Teen Wolf, especially like I feel seasons like one to two, maybe the three Teen Wolf. Ideal, ideal trashy teen television. Yeah, it was such a big deal, like, what, five or six years ago? I want to say it was five. I yeah. feel like it was five. Be- yeah, it was five. Oh, man. Younger, more innocent days of shipping terrible, unethical ships, probably. And also just <laughs> just so much. And it's always more about the interpersonal drama than the external drama, though both mm-hmm. Teen Wolf and Riverdale have a healthy, healthy helpings of both. Should I try and give a summary of the dramatic nightmare that is Riverdale? I think so. It is also worth mentioning, sweet, sweet listeners, because it's a more compact piece of the pie to talk about, we're only going to be talking about season one of Riverdale. So if you haven't watched it, you should probably do that if you're planning on doing that. But if you're not, just we will get you up to speed. Yeah, if you just want to hear about trashy teen soap operas secondhand, which is probably a fun way to hear about them, you can you can stay. But if you actually want to watch it, you should go. Uh, and you're safe if you've only made it through season one, because I've only made it through season one, and two episodes of the next season, which don't actually help resolve anything anyway. So... (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Riverdale opens talking about this missing person's case. There is a golden boy jock heir to a massive fortune who has disappeared, and his sister... His twin sister is saying that on the morning of July 4th, they went on an early morning boat ride and the ship capsized or he leaned out of the the boat to get her glove and fell into the river and, you know, was swept away and never seen again. So they dredge the river and they look for the body and they don't find a body and eventually they give up. They hold a memorial service, school starts, and there's this kind of gaping absence in in people's lives, this this spot that is missing. Uh, And there's beginning, there's this burgeoning feeling of a loss of innocence, like something isn't right here. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And eventually that kind of flowers into a very nasty plant when... They find Jason's body, I believe in like August, a couple of months later, and he's been shot in the head. 
he hasn't drowned at all. He's had a very violent death. And the show kind of follows this from the perspective of Betty, Veronica, Archie, and Jughead. Jughead and Betty begin to investigate this killing. Veronica is there struggling with the fact that she's rich and has become rich in very morally ambiguous and unethical ways. And Archie is there, and a lot of the first season is consumed with Archie's affair with his music teacher and trying to figure out whether or not he wants to pursue athletics or music and also hiding this affair from everyone because on the morning of July 4th, he and the teacher were at the park where Jason allegedly drowned and was later found murdered, and they heard a gunshot. And this gunshot is very contentious in, like, the first six to eight episodes of the season, and then it turns out it wasn't a big deal. So the first season, the suspects keep building, and they think it must be one of their own, and it's very dramatic, and Betty is dealing with the fact that Archie doesn't love her, like, romantically, when she loves him romantically, and that Veronica and Archie made out at a closet and a party, and it's all very dramatic, and eventually she and Jughead get together, and oh, by the way, Betty's sister is pregnant with Jason Blossoms. They were dating. I've I've just gotten this all messed up. But (laughs) Betty Cooper's sister Polly was dating Jason, and they had a big fight. And then it turns out that Polly was prego, and so they were going to run away together, but, you know, he ended up murdered, and Polly was sent away to live in a convent for troubled teens to, like, wait out her shame. Anyway, so she's pregnant with his, with his kids, but he is dead, and then there's this whole plotline of, like, will she go live with the Coopers, or will she go live with the Blossoms, the Coopers are her, Betty and her family, and, like, her mom, everyone has all of these secrets, and, like, Hiram Lodge, who's Veronica's dad, has bribed the mayor into selling them the outdoor theaters lot, and it's like, what if someone finds out, and there's also this gang of people called the Serpents who are, like, doing Hiram Lodge's bidding, it's all very... It's all very dark and mysterious, and who has loyalties to whom, and who is doing what for what money. Basically, it's glorious. Glorious, chaotic intrigue for days. And that's my summary. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It is, yeah. (laughs) I can't. Sometimes I think about the plot of this show, and I'm like, oh yeah, and that happened. Oh yeah, and that happened. Oh, yeah, and that happened. Like, it stuffs so much into the, a 13-episode season, which is very trashy teen TV, and I love it. Oh, I, so I can't believe that, like, the Miss Grundy teacher plotline was, like, in season one. It feels like that was three seasons ago. I know. Weirdly enough, that is one of the least crazy things that happened. Yeah, one of the most feasible <laughs> plotlines. Like, yeah, it ends when, like, Betty, it's, like, I think it's, it might, it's Betty and Jughead, I think, who are finally, like, Archie, that's illegal. (laughs) And you need to, like, 
tell somebody or we're going to tell somebody. And then his dad finds out and then it's a whole thing. Yeah, there's a big confrontation scene. Miss Grundy leaves town. It's a whole thing. But I think what we wanted to talk about first, if I remember correctly from our production meeting, is the nature of gritty reboots. Yes. I love gritty reboots. When they're done well, and even sometimes when they're not. To me, the patient zero of gritty reboots, to give you a bit of history, listeners, is Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. Yeah. It's 2005. The last Batman movie <laughs> was Joel Schumacher. I think it was, I think Schumacher was his name. Joel, Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin, which crashed hysterically, horribly, and no one thought the Batman franchise was ever going to recover. Here comes Christopher Nolan. <laughs> and he's like, okay, but what if we went for the gritty realism noir thing? And it worked really well for that movie. And then it also worked really well for The Dark Knight, which was the sequel to that movie. Here's the deal, though. That doesn't work for every story. And sometimes people don't understand that. And by people, I mean movie executives. Because we're still getting movies that follow the gritty reboot formula where you take something that is... For some of our younger listeners who may not have watched Batman movies before Batman Begins... Batman Begins was a very different kind of movie. It was very dark. It was very gritty. Whereas the Batman stories, even going back to like the Adam West television show, were kind of more more colorful, dramatic in that like overly dramatic kind of way. Not in like a, oh, I'm going to kidnap your girlfriend, but also the DA. And it, it's just, it was a whole thing. But the point of a gritty reboot is to take the storyline or set pieces or characters or some combination of those three things from an original story and put it in either completely ignore the original context it was in or just put it in a new interpretation of that context and Riverdale does that it completely divorces the story of Riverdale and Archie and his friends from the original context of the comic which was kind of just about this like normal kid named Archie Andrews in a normal town doing kid things. Like, that is decidedly not the point of Riverdale. The point of Riverdale is to sort of, in my mind, and this is especially enforced by stuff that happens with Betty's storyline that I'm sure we'll talk about, and stuff that happens with how Jughead works almost as like a narrator within within the show. So what a lot of those more noir elements, I think, are designed to do is to dissect this idea that we've become very opposed to in our more modern cinema um, in the aftermath of things like the Stepford Wives, Desperate Housewives, like these stories that are meant to take a setting that we're familiar with, in the case of Riverdale, you know, the typical small town that looks perfect on the outside, and to sort of find and expose the seedy underbelly (laughs) of that idea. And... I think it works in it in a weird way. Like, this is something that I think is worth mentioning. As much as we are like, oh, it's trashy teen TV. Trashy teen TV and being good TV are not mutually exclusive. Oh, I don't no. Feel. I don't feel that way either. I don't think I would watch it if it weren't very compelling 
TV. And I mean, sometimes it's a little cringy. And I think that's just because they're teenagers dealing with teenager things. And who didn't cringe their way through their own adolescence? (laughs) I feel like I'm still doing it. And I'm 26. Yeah. So, like... It never stops. I, I cannot. I cannot cast that first stone. Yeah, it never it never really stops. And I think this is sort of exemplified in like a tiny little bit character arc, like in miniature with Betty Cooper and her mm-hmm. her perfectionism and the way that her mom especially has all these expectations of her. And the rosy pink, that aura that follows her around everywhere while she's cutting into her own palms, clenching her fists because she can't stand, like, the fakeness of, like, the whole thing. Like, the whole perfection of the Cooper's act, it's an act and it frustrates her so much and she's just, like, twisted up inside about it. She just wants to be honest with people about you know, the struggles that her family is going through and not feel like she has to put on a performance all the time. Yeah, and and I think that is something that is very relatable even through to young adulthood because I think a lot of people even our age are still very much thinking like adulthood is just one long performance of looking like you know what you're doing. Right. And no one really knows what they're doing. No, and I don't know if we ever do figure that out. I don't know. I I don't know. We'll figure it out as we go. That's what I always that's what I always tell myself. But I I definitely agree with that and I think that is something that is a bit at the heart of the overall plot and a lot of the themes and motifs that keep coming up in the first season is this whole idea that this perfectionism, this goodness is inherently artificial. Mhm. In a bad way. Because I I think doing good things from a place where you're like, even if you're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Depending on if you think, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do because this is what it means to be a good person. Like, if you're doing them, then you're still doing good things, like, regardless of where the motivation comes from. Mm -hmm. But with a lot of people in the town, the motivation comes from appearance, not necessarily what those actions are actually going to cause Mm -hmm. and that's brought up at the end of the season with betty is asked by mayor mccoy to read a speech to this like it's like riverdale strong or whatever it's it's the name of it is but it's a big town hall party thing in the aftermath of jason blossom's murder being solved and it has come out that he was murdered by his own father in an effort to maintain control over not only his family, but over, uh, originally the Blossoms had money in maple syrup. The Blossom patriarch had been running drugs through yeah. the company from Canada. Heroin, which is, heroin, you know, the grandpappy of all other <laughs> illegal of drugs. all the hard drugs. And she was, and she's talking about all these people who I think the phrase she's just like, like so so and so is Riverdale, and it talks about like Archie's dad, who's like this business owner who helps build buildings and does a whole bunch of contracts around the city, and it talks about like Mayor McCoy and all these people who helped like helped solve the case, and I think she talks about Archie at some point, but she's also like 
Clifford Blossom was Riverdale. Mm-hmm. And F.P. Jones, who's Jughead's dad, who was originally, who admitted to the murder out of fear for Jughead's life, was Riverdale. And all this other stuff. So there's this whole ongoing conflict that comes to a head, or it looks like it's going to come to a head at some point, between the north side of Riverdale, which is where most of the action takes place, it's where Riverdale High is, and the south side of Riverdale, which is where, like, the south side serpents are, which is the local gang, and, like, all this other stuff. So there's this constant weird classism element to it, Mm -hmm. too. The whole point of the speech is, like, Riverdale is built up of everything it is, not just the parts that look pretty. Right. You can't pick and choose. (laughs) It is Mm -hmm. what it is. It's so interesting how the town's sociological idea of itself is structured to me because it's very protective of itself, even though everyone is doing terrible things all of the time, basically. Yeah. People are getting bribed, other people are, like, destroying evidence, and there's some incest, maybe, kind of, yeah. sort of. Anytime you have to say it's technically not incest, it's it's just not a good look. Yeah. It's, it's not. But, yeah, it that was something that was interesting to me, because as a person who grew, grew up in a small, mainly white town, I, I could kind of relate to that a bit. Mm-hmm. Of the whole thing of, like, wanting to protect this sanctity, maybe even, mm-hmm. of your community, even if that's inherently are, are artificial. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about is how hard this show tries to be Twin Peaks. Hmm. And I think that goes into kind of the noir element. Like, Twin Peaks was so strange. And there's a little bit of that strangeness there, I think, with Cheryl Blossom especially. But the show takes a lot of elements, either intentionally or unintentionally, I couldn't conjecture, from Twin Peaks. There's this Mm -hmm. murder of this young person who was the town's golden child. You have this rich mysterious family living up on the hill in a big creepy house you have a character that looks like the murder victim that's played a little more subtly in Riverdale than Twin Peaks because they did not get Mm -hmm. the same actor to play (laughs) that person Um, but Archie does look a lot like Jason Blossom and I don't know it's very Riverdale doesn't have that supernatural element that Twin Peaks has, that very strange thing with the Black Lodge, and the practical elements. It's very similar, and it was sort of off-putting for me, because I don't know why it wanted to be Twin Peaks so bad. That's a good point, and I think think it's worth discussing, because Twin Peaks reminds me the only other thing i can think to compare it to there's two films i can kind of compare it to as far as like the phenomena of it as like what it did for culture and that's like the matrix and blade runner where like nothing really looked like any of those three things nothing really felt like any of those three things 
before they happened. And now it's like you can see that they were like patient zero mm-hmm. for something. And with Twin Peaks, I think I think now that we've seen what that show did with the mystery in the small town under these mysterious circumstances, even though you're right, Riverdale doesn't have that weird supernatural metaphysical element of Bob and the Black Lodge that Twin Peaks did, which was very David Lynch. <laughs> Those parallels are are so obvious because they're they've become so iconic mm-hmm. in that particular execution. And I don't and I think at some point if you don't lean into it, you're never really going to be able to separate yourself from it. I feel I'm I'm very much the kind of person we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. I'm the kind of person. No, we talked about this in the Crimson Peak episode. Excuse me. Where if you don't, you're never going to get as far away from your tropes as you want. So you might as well just lean in. And I think Riverdale, whether it's on purpose or not, I don't know. I don't really care. It kind of does that, I think. And I think part of it is co-opting that what has now become a trope Mm -hmm. because of things like Twin Peaks is oh it's the murder in the small town and it's the kid and the kids are the ones who are really going to figure it out which even though it has this dark twisty turny bit in riverdale is also in buffy it's also in i mean like the original of it is scooby-doo right and those meddling kids i i definitely agree that the intersection of it with the small town thing is very twin peaks and i think I think at some point, regardless if you're doing it on purpose, I think when something is that successful and becomes such a cultural juggernaut, trying to find something in that formula that will help you recapture that is something that I think is very common Mm -hmm. and kind of normal. I mean, common makes, makes it sound bad, but. I don't really know what it does for the whole show, but I think as far as from like a creator standpoint, it may very well not be on purpose, but it's too it's too much to discount it. But I don't know what it means. I don't know. Maybe it just does something to evoke a certain mood. Because I, I feel like mm-hmm. all of Twin Peaks is very tense. Like that show is very yes. tense. And a word that I use too much, it's fraught. Both shows are very fraught. <laughs> it is very fraught. I definitely agree. And and Riverdale very much functions on this whole idea of terror over horror, I would say, in that it it is focusing on these tense moments that are fraught with this dramatic energy and tension, and it's just focusing on them until they break, mm-hmm. essentially. We see that with Betty. We see that with Betty and Jughead's relationship and all we see that with Archie and Miss Grundy at some point. Like it's the whole point of like, well, how far can this ever really go in this weird miasma of tension and energy and sense suspicion that we're all living in right now? Mm-hmm. The other thing too that's atmospheric about the show is I think it cultivates a nostalgia visually and 
this kind of longing that we have for bygone times. Like, they hang out at this diner. That's a classic diner. Uh, again, also very much a callback to Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. The way that Betty and Veronica dress especially is very... There's something classic about it, but that's also very much the tailoring of their clothes and and the way that they dress is sort of a throwback to the 1950s. There's something being called back there, I really feel like, the way that they're costumed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the boys wear very... Clothes that could be from any time period, really, I feel like, from the 1940s on up. And where I really noticed it, and it was kind of jarring, is the uniforms of the hospital staff. And the way that the yeah. hospital looked, which I think might be getting into season two. But but I, but I, I think it ties into what you're talking about. Yeah. So yeah, the 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 nurses at the hospital in Riverdale don't wear scrubs in 2017, and that was that took me right out of it, like for a second. I'm like, what are they wearing? Mm-hmm. That is not how nurses dress. And that's it. That is getting into season two, but it's not too spoilery. So, but yeah, I I think there is some element to the costume and the whole design element of the show that. Whether it's done in in homage to the original comics mm-hmm. or not, I think is up for debate. But I I agree that there's something about it that wants to find this middle ground between being nostalgic and being timeless and being modern. Mm-hmm. That is especially evident in the costuming, because like you could put, especially how Veronica and Betty dress, you could plop them like in an '80s movie and they'd look like they belonged there, or anywhere else i think the only person that i think dresses quote-unquote modern and by modern i mean probably like 80s on up is jughead mm-hmm. but he's like he says of himself he's being the weirdo talk about manufacturing things with with because jughead i think the thing that i find interesting about his character with jughead is that he does in a roundabout way, all the shit he calls people out for doing. He's just doing it with his own personality versus doing it for a whole town. Right. Which is a very normal teenage thing to do, I think. Right. We talked about this a little bit in the production meeting about how, like, finding a trope for yourself or finding, like, a caricature for yourself and then just acting on up to that is easier than, like, finding yourself as a real person and forming normal relationships like that shit's hard yeah and i think we see jughead doing that a little bit because i think he's decided that this place doesn't want him so he's decided to do a wholesale rejection of it pick out this weirdo persona and then as a kind of a protective measure act that out and I think we see that start to crumble a little bit, but there's definitely, you see it most clearly when Betty throws him a surprise party for his birthday, and he mm-hmm. just flips out, especially when the party is co-opted by Cheryl and Chuck, who, Chuck, this is another crazy sub subplot, the football team has been basically sexually harassing girls at the high school and keeping like a playbook about it which is something i i see a lot in YA fiction is these jocks have these gross 
like accounting systems for their conquests and for the yeah, like teenage boys do. don't do that. I don't think they do. I I don't know. Well, not they don't not don't do that to the sexual harassment part. I do not see them keeping a record of it because that's a that's a paper trail, and even like. 16-year-old boys know what paper trails are. Right. So I don't know if that's a convenient illustration for, like... It may be a convenient plot device. And, like, oh, here's this history that's very convenient for our purposes. Uh, But anyway, Veronica becomes a victim of this. And to get revenge, they basically handcuff Chuck in a jacuzzi and, like, Betty steps on his head head and shoulders until he like is about to drown to get him to confess to being a terrible person and it's like again betty has this alter ego that is her seedy underbelly that she's trying to keep under wraps but cheryl and chuck take over this party and it turns into a rager and all jughead wants to do is hang out with archie and betty (laughs) for his birthday and it causes this friction between him and it leads to in your opinion the most iconic line of the series yes (gasps) you ever see me without this hat that's weird (laughs) god and we never do see him without that hat we do though when he starts every once in a while maybe that's season two we start to see him without the hat. Maybe in season two. We start to see him without the hat when he replaces it with the Southside Serpent's jacket. It's just, like, comforting. Oh. I don't know how I feel about that, but... I have thoughts. Um, but that is for season two, which is not going to be discussed today. Where I think I'm getting with all this, with, with Jughead, and uh, I think we see it a bit with this continued callback to, like... how jason blossom and archie look alike but people mostly say it when archie's in like his letterman jacket or in like his football uniform which is something jason blossom also did there's this weird almost cycle going on in riverdale where every kid has to deal with whatever bullshit their parents have done yeah when they were in high school yeah (laughs) when they were in high school like, we see that with Betty, where, like, stuff with her um, her, her parents when they were in high school comes up. Betty's mom, Alice Cooper, runs the local newspaper, which is really a tabloid, basically. And she, like, bribes coroners for autopsy reports and stuff. And it comes out that she's doing this explicitly to hurt the Blossoms because she's, like, your son corrupted my daughter. And they're, like, your daughter corrupted our son. And, like... <laughs> Typical shit. And her dad is like, their great-great-grandfather killed your great-great-grandfather, and now we can never get over it. And it turns out they were brothers, and that's where the incest comes in, because Polly and Jason were both offshoots of the same family however many generations back, and that's why we'd say, well, is it technically incest if it's that many generations, but it's still, like, not great. And I don't know why the parents couldn't have just sat them down and been like, look, Polly is your third cousin. Do you really want to do this? I know. I think that's a thing that was repeated throughout this show. The adults are so frustrating. Yes. Because they act like fucking teenagers. And they're so petty. And and 
it it's very it's almost shakespearean in a way like the weird the you mentioned the whole sins of the father will be visited on the son thing that is prevalent with everybody in this show where it, it's like there, there's no getting away from this weird cycle of like prejudice and violence that has apparently always been in Riverdale but was never really talked about or recorded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have parents telling their kids that they shouldn't hang out with other kids because of their relationships between the families. And, like, parents yelling at teenagers for things that their parents did, which I find very alarming. Like, you're the adult. You're supposed to be able to com- compartmentalize this these things and not do the- that to these kids. And the kids are the ones who are like, go, stop it. <laughs> we're, not, we're not like this anymore. Yeah, when the kids are the ones that are mature, you know it's it's bad. So I guess a question I have in regards to the whole idea of Riverdale as Gritty Reboot and what happens when we divorce things from their original context, do you feel this show had to be this way for this story to be successful with a modern audience as opposed to what the comics originally founded on? Because I'm kind of leaning into that. Of, like, Riverdale as written in the 1940s, even through the crazy shit that apparently happened in the comics. I did some research on this, reader. Shit was cray. Because <laughs> I was like, there's no way. There's no way. Things were, like, as insane as they are on the show. And they're insane on the show in different ways. But, like, I think one of the big changes that I thought was interesting in the comics... Betty and Veronica are constantly at odds for Archie's affection. And that's something that is settled pretty much like episode one or two. Right. Where Betty is like, hey, Archie, I'm willing to get this to another level. What do you feel about that? And he's just like, uh, no. Because he's dating his music teacher, apparently. And... That's how, like, it opens up later in the show for her to get with Jughead and all this other stuff. And eventually Archie might give Veronica, which he probably will, with the tropes of the show. And it's it's that whole thing. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm familiar with the comics from, like, the issues that were available at the grocery store on that cheap paper. It was, like, a little booklet. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like normal teenagers dealing with normal teenager problems. And I don't know. Here's the thing about that. Even if that were a sustainable model, I don't think I would want to watch two girls fight over a guy for forever. Like, as the main mechanism for the plot going forward. Like, that's not... We're past that point, I hope, as you know, a society, like, that, where that's not interesting to us anymore. So I'm kind of glad that it stepped away from that part of the original content. And in the con- in the original comics, Veronica is very much, like, a mean girl, right? She's, like, rich, mm-hmm. and she gets what she wants, and Veronica in the show is sort of like that, but she's making a 
concerted effort to not be a mean girl. Like, she's like, that's the old Veronica. That's not who I want to be going forward. And I think that's also Mm -hmm. more interesting. And to answer your original question, I don't know if it needed to be gritty necessarily. I think we have come to expect this kind of darkness and dramatic dramaticness in our television where it becomes very difficult to escape that expectation to make a successful franchise because I mean that's essentially what they're doing is they need to make money so I don't know if it would have been seen as silly or frivolous if it had kept some of the lightheartedness of the original because once you once you take out those mechanisms for conflict that were fundamental to the original comic, you have to put something else in or the show won't go. And and I guess a murder case and the the fallout is as good as a engine as any for a show, especially with the recent fascination with true crime and other darker shows that I haven't watched like isn't Black Mirror really dark and like, ooh, technology? Black Mirror is really dark. I couldn't get through the first episode. And I I can do, I can take a lot of shit. I can do a lot of stuff. But like, and there's some episodes I'd want to watch. I think that's one of the things I that's interesting about Black Mirror in particular. Is it is, it's really, I, I feel like it has, from what I've read, it has good ideas. It's just the conclusions it draws from those ideas that can be kind of weird. It's like, no, the technology in and of itself isn't bad. It's the corporation that makes it. Like, sorry, Black Mirror. Like, I'm sorry that you hate cell phones or whatever. But, like, <laughs> maybe you should go after the people who make them, yeah, not people who use it's them. Yeah, is it the system or the players in the system that are the issue? Yeah, so I don't know. I think the current market is very much where we are right now is we're at the gritty reboot. That's just where we are in terms of the marketplace. I am hopeful that with shows like The Good Place, which I also haven't really watched yet, that we're moving towards something a little bit more lighthearted but still very thoughtful and considered yeah. It's harder to do that. I really feel that it's harder to do that. And in some ways, the gritty reboot is easier because people are familiar with it. People know what to expect. You have all these avenues to create dramatic tension. It's very compelling because uh, we love drama. I, I feel like that's a human trait. Like, humans love drama. Stop pretending like that's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, look at any piece of Greek literature from, like, thousands, literally thousands. Yeah, Sophocles was here for the drama. People loved the drama. He was here. Yeah, Sophocles was here for the drama. Homer was here for the drama. It's who we are, people. So, stop pretending like you're above it. If the ancient Greeks revered whatever weren't above it, you're not either. (laughs) Yeah, like, I, I think to me that that is the crux of the gritty reboot issue, is it always seems like, and any genre I think encourages this, there's camps of the extremists in either direction who are like, if it's not 
realistic quote-unquote then i don't want to watch it or because realistic in that sense almost always means like pessimistic really right and i don't think that's real that isn't real the truth is always somewhere in the middle and i think real life is always going to be so much more boring than television because it's television it's engineered to be entertaining real life is just real life it's just what happens so yeah Weirdly enough, there's a quote from, like, Community about that. When, because there's, like, the character of Abed who's, like, sees the world through, like, TV references and stuff. And the one time, I think it's Jeff who's the main character, was like, do you even understand the difference between television and real life? And he's just like, yes, real life is boring. And it doesn't have spectacular leading characters who always have the right, know the right thing to say. Like, that's not, a, that's not real. Right. So the idea that television or any form of media can be truly realistic and still be entertaining, I feel like is a fallacy. Like, we wouldn't need to escape and to indulge ourselves in media if our real lives were like that. So, I don't know. I think it's a false, it's a false idol to worship realism in your media. I agree. I definitely agree. I I, I just... It it doesn't work because all media is inherently artificial, first of all. It's all made. And you have to follow conventions and you have to follow these methods that we all know intrinsically, I think, if you read or watch or listen to enough. Like, you know. And we've talked about this a little bit with genre and genre expectations, and how, like, my expectations when I sit down to watch an episode of Riverdale may be different than when I read, like, a romance novel, or if I'm reading, like, a high fantasy novel, or whatever, or if I'm watching, like, reality TV, which is usually just as scripted as non-reality <laughs> TV. Like, the, my expectations for those are all indiscreet categories, but they're still expectations. Mm -hmm. And... You can't ever really escape them. You can conform or you can defy them, but you can't really escape them. And I think it's kind of refreshing in a in a way that trashy teen TV, only trashy teen TV can really be. When you have something that is willing to deliver on those expectations and to just make fun tv because that's what it is at the end of the day that's what teen wolf was that's probably what beverly hills 90210 was back in the 90s yeah it's fun you just want to watch beautiful young people run around doing ridiculous things that's just what you want to do sometimes I feel like there's such a fear in our society around the idea of being, like, frivolous or shallow or or something like that. Like, we can't be shallow. You can't just... I don't know. And I feel like it's very much a way to keep people, like, in line, almost. Like, you can't be frivolous or shallow. You have to look for this deeper meaning. It's about duty over what you actually want and how those don't always align. And I think it's a way to reinforce that paradigm almost like even in what we do and our downtime for entertainment has to be somehow worthwhile, which is 
sort of not how I would frame recreational time necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Like, even yeah. even when we're having fun, it must be constructive. And I think that's been made worse by this idea of needing to have a side hustle. But no, I definitely think that's true. And that's something that I've fallen into the deep, dark pit of now that I um, I took a, a semester off from working because I'm taking like five classes or something fucked. I don't know why I did that to myself because we're like a month away from the semester being over. And now I have to do the final projects and exams for those Ugh. five classes. And I'm like, past Rachel, why did you do me like this? <laughs> like, <I can't. laughs> but it's that yeah. whole thing where like, Every time I settle down, like, y'all y'all know I love my video games, but, like, every time I sit down, and even if I want to take, like, 30 minutes to just run around and do, like, a quest or something in Warcraft, I have this, like, nagging thought in the back of my head of, like, well, what is this going to do for you? And I've started to do, to say to that little voice in my head, it makes me happy, shut up. <laughs> because sometimes that's all, that's all you can say. That's all you have to say. If it makes you happy and you're not hurting yourself or anybody else, it's not a waste of time. I I guess I didn't realize until I started really thinking about it, especially in our, like, aggressively capitalist society where, like, work is seen as a virtue in and of itself. That is kind of radical. Mm-hmm. And I think if... We're going to continue to try to survive in this world out here that is looking less and less survivable by the day sometimes. We're going to need the trashy teen dramas because sometimes you don't want to pay attention to real life. Sometimes you want to pay attention to tiny towns where crazy shit happens and adults are terrible and you just want to worry about someone else's problems. Okay, robots, that is it for today. We hope you enjoy Trashy Teen Soap Operas as much as we do here at Remedial Studies. Uh, We actually have an indie spotlight for you this time. I'm very excited because I just ordered an enamel pen from them. But uh, we wanted to highlight an illustrator named Greer. You're probably familiar with them on Tumblr. They have that long white goblin cat and also some kind of bangle mix. Um, And the cat just screeches all the time. It's wonderful. Anyway, their Tumblr is panger-and-grim1m.tumblr.com. And their store where you can buy pins and also I think paleo art is Greer, S-T-O-T-H-E-R-S dot storeinv.com. And their art blog is greer-art.tumblr.com. So Greer Stuthers. Okay, I couldn't figure that out on the store for some reason. But recently they've been doing this cool thing where you get an egg or you pick out an egg, and then they send you an enamel pen that hatched out of that egg a couple of weeks later. So that's real cool. Um, They also do paleo art, so it's like dinosaurs and stuff. And I feel like we have a large contingent of listeners that like dinosaurs anyway. Uh, Rachel, do you want to tell the good people how they can reach us? 
We are available on many and sundry social medias. The best way to get in touch with us, however, is on our Twitter, where apparently I tweet about things at three in the morning that you all probably don't care about, but you're going to hear it today. That's at Remedial Studies on Twitter. We are also um, on Tumblr, Remedial Studies, podcast.tumblr.com. We are on Instagram at Remedial Studies, and we are available via email at Remedial Studies Podcast at gmail.com. Our next episode is going to be the first podcast we're ever reviewing Ooh. on this show. It is uh, the McElroy Brothers' The Adventure Zone. Uh, we're going to be talking about the first major arc balance since Amnesty um, is ongoing. And we both have a lot of feelings about balance and how um, I'm very interested to talk about using uh, role-playing games for long-form storytelling and how that's different in a podcast versus just doing it around a table. I get an excuse to talk about Dungeons and Dragons this episode, so get ready. Get ready, It's all a ruse so that we can (laughs) talk about our own Dungeons and Dragons game for like an hour to strangers on the internet. It is. We haven't done that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And just to kind of clear out our scheduling for the rest of the year, on Christmas, or most likely a day or so before or after, our year, our second annual year in review episode is going to go up. That's how we're going to close out the year. Yeah. And that's where we talk about around five things each of the things that really stood out to us this year and why we liked it. And it's it's a very casual, it's much more casual than like a normal episode is, which I really like. Yeah, it's always fun for us to like get really excited and then listen to or watch or read whatever the other person recommended the previous year. <laughs> so I think, like, Rachel picked up Monstrous because of that episode last mm-hmm. year. I did. So you'll find out about some good stuff. You will not see us. We will not see you. But you will hear us next time. Bye, Bye. robots. Bye.